Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. We welcome you to Providence. Uh, welcome back or welcome for the first time. We're so glad you're here. My name's Jacob Armstrong. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're starting today uh, what we call a, a series. We're starting a new series called For Such a Time as This. And it will be the study of a, of a young woman. Her name's Esther, who was born as an orphan and then uh, as an exile. We'll talk a little bit more what that means. And then a captive of sorts. And she came to this place where she was asked a question, and the question was this, who knows, Esther, but that you have come to this position for such a time as this. And I'm going to be asking you all month long, we're going to be asking you uh, that same question. Who knows, but that you've come to this position, this place in your life for just this time. And some of you already, I know, are, are thinking of all the reasons you're disqualified to think about your purpose or how God might use you. I'm not going to let you do that. Some of you are kind of rolling your eyes, you know, like, you know, I've heard that kind of thing before. And you can say, I, you say, Jacob, I came in here broken. I barely, I barely made it in out of the parking lot. And by the way, there's sort of an issue out there with all the parking, all the parking spaces. And, you know, all those things that are on your, on your mind and on your heart to think we're going to talk about the purpose for my life. And all I'm asking you is to, to think and take a breath that you might hear God's word today, not a, not a sermon series title, but God's word from the authority of God's word from the Bible, this question, who knows, who knows that you may have come to this position, this place for such a time as this. Did you know that if the right person says the right thing in the right place at the right time, that it could change everything? Did you know that? If the right person, that's a mouthful, but if the right person says the right thing in the right place at the right time, everything can change. And so that's why we have to kind of pay attention. We think, what could I do? What? But, but if, if this is your time and your place, amazing things can happen. Um, sometimes I'm standing here, like right about here, and there's a person on each side, and then usually a small gathering of people down there. We have a short ceremony, and at the end of it, I, I look at them, and I say, now that you've given yourselves to one another by the joining of hands, solemn vows, and the giving and receiving of rings, I announce, I announce that you are husband and wife. And then even more formal, I say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. And then they have a kiss and they walk down the aisle and they walk out of those doors. And here's the thing. They believe that they are married because I said it, which to me is crazy, right? And so I'll go home and, and Rachel will be like, how was the wedding? I'm like, okay, get this. They're walking around out in the world and they think they're married because I said it right in that place. There's like dozens of people walking around in the world that think they're married because I said that they are married. And here's the crazy thing. They are. Because <laughs> I was the right person in the right place at the right time. And I said <laughs> the right things. It's crazy, I know. Um, so let's say you, you hit me. You, not, not you hit me. Uh, you came up to me. In, <laughs> Say this is a whole different story. I can imagine. Let's say you came up and let's say you came up to me in the lobby and you said this, Jacob, you're a good dad. And if you said that, it would mean a lot to me because I'm trying to be a good dad. And maybe you've watched my life and you think, yeah, he's a he's a good dad. He's doing a good job. That would mean a lot to me. But let's say that there was a, a night during the week when I had royally messed up as a dad, that I offered a harsh word when I should have offered a gentle word that maybe I lost my, my cool a little bit, for example, in the new Chick-fil-A 
drive through um, <laughs> where it seems really simple to me that the car here yields to this car. It, like, to me, it's, it's, I get it, but not everybody does. And let's just say that instead of acting the way I should have, I acted a different way, and I'm about as low as I can get because I let being tired and being busy allow me to not live up to the purpose, a calling that I've been given. So let's say that, for example. And let's say one of my people in my home grabs me by the face and says, you're a good dad. That's a game changer. Why? Because it's the right person in the right place at the right time. So I've skipped ahead some in Esther, but I have to let you know that that question is coming. It doesn't come till much later in chapter four, but you have to know that Esther comes to this place in her journey where she could either choose the safe thing, she could choose the thing that makes sure she's okay, she could stay in the lane of pleasure and riches beyond her wildest dreams, but all the while, some people she loves and are connected to are dying on the streets and Esther is faced with this life-defining moment that happens because someone asks her, who knows, Esther, that you've come to actually this place for just this time? And we're going to see that Esther's response is a life-changing and even a city-changing and even a nation-changing moment because she realized what God was calling her to. So we're gonna look at four main characters in the Esther story. I think there are four. Uh, we're gonna look at two this morning and we'll have some more weeks to kind of see how the story unfolds. The first character that I wanna introduce you to, his name is Xerxes, King Xerxes. And you're gonna like King Xerxes at first, okay? Because King Xerxes loves to party. And some of you are like, Pastor Jacob, I like to party. I know, I know, I know you. I'm on Instagram, I see. Like, I get it, okay? And so you're gonna like King Xerxes at first. He is the king of the Persian Empire, which is at the time the largest and most powerful empire in the world. They've just taken over this area of the Middle East where the Jews live, which is why it's a part of our story. And in King Xerxes' third year of being a king, he decides to throw a party to end all parties. He throws a 180-day party to celebrate his wealth and what he says is the splendor of his majesty. And so 180 days of celebration throughout the empire to celebrate how great their king is. And at the end of those 180 days, so this, this is Esther 1 verse 5, it says, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. Do you see what's happened here? Xerxes has partied for six months and he's like, anybody up for another week? And everybody's like, yeah. And so he gave a banquet for seven more days. This is in his garden, the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden, so we now we get a description of his party. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, each goblet different from the other. And the royal wine was in abundance in keeping with the king's liberality. And by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction. What do you hear there? Open bar, right? <laughs> For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. 
Some of you are like, Pastor, how do you know about open bar? Well, I go to your weddings, okay? (laughs) And so after seven days of partying, after six months of partying, when the king was in high spirits, chapter 1, verse 10, on the seventh day, when the king was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Seven days of wine in, the king comes up with what he thinks is the greatest idea ever, which is to parade his beautiful wife around the couches so all the men can see her. They approach Queen Vashti, and she says, um, no. It's sort of an uncomfortable moment, right? It, it, I mean, it's uncomfortable to even think about an analogy. It'd be like me, you know, if I'm at my house on the couch with the boys, you know, and, and say, tell Rachel to come in. Hey, baby, come on, do a couple laps around the, around the couches for us. She would say something, right? She would say something. Um, no, would be. And that's what Vashti said. When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. He went from happy drunk to mean drunk, just like that. He's like, what am I going to do? And so the king calls his cabinet, like the, his royal officials who advise him to try to help him with this issue with his wife. He calls his cabinet, says, what are we going to do with Vashti? And this is what they come up with. So this is uh, chapter 1, verse 17. It's the cabinet response back to the king, his advisors. They say this, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she would not come. You see what they're saying? Vashti could mess up this for everybody if, if everybody finds out. Vashti, it seems like a small thing, but she has actually done a very courageous thing, willing to give up her high position to say, I will not behave like my husband. And so what they decide to do is they they say that Vashti can never again come into the courts of the king. She can never stand in his presence again. And they take her crown from her. They take away the, the crown. She's no longer the queen. Xerxes could have been known as a great king. Instead, he's known as a great partier. Xerxes chose pleasure over purpose. And we do this all the time. I don't want you to see this as a king story, okay? Xerxes chose pleasure over purpose, and we do this all the time. He had a God-given purpose to lead and serve the people. That's what a king's supposed to do. Lead well and serve the people. Lead well and serve the people. He'd been lifted up by God to this appointed place, and instead, he decided to throw a party for six months. I'm not against partying, okay? I like a good party. But you can see how Xerxes has got into some weird zone when he's thinking it's okay to take all of his attention off of leading and serving well and and throw a six-month party and follow it up by a week-long party. Uh, John Ortberg, who is an author and pastor, he talks about this and he calls it a shadow mission or a shadow purpose. What he's talking about is that we all have this purpose, this calling, but if we're not careful, we'll begin to live into a shadow of it. 
The way that happens is when we begin to do something over and over and over again that is not out of the outflow of our purpose. It's fine to have a party and it's actually right and good for a king to throw a celebration. But when he begins to think that he's supposed to be the party master, that's not actually actually what his calling is. He's living into a shadow of his purpose. Sometimes I find myself living in a shadow. I feel like I'm living in a shadow or a shadow of my purpose. And usually I can trace it back to some moment where I began to do something over and over again that was not out of the outflow of my purpose. So for some of you, like, I don't even know what my purpose is. We're going we're gonna to watch Esther to see if we can figure out that, what that is. But just know that we have the tendency you know, to, to come along and, and live into a shadow of that. The second character I want you to know about this week is Esther. Okay? Why do we get Esther so quick? Because the king needs a new queen. And so he begins a nationwide search for his new queen. He's looking for all the, his, his criteria is beautiful women. He's looking for all the beautiful women. Well, some estimate that a thousand young women were brought into the courts of the king. What they would do is undergo beauty treatments and then they would get one night with the king and he'd get to decide who his queen was. Did I tell you Xerxes chose pleasure over purpose? And so Esther was a Jewish girl growing up under the exile. She'd lost her heritage, lost her nation, lost her, her ability to, to worship in her religion. She'd lost her name. The name given to her by her parents was Hadassah, a Hebrew name, but she received a Persian name, Esther, as she grew up an orphan being raised by her cousin. She was selected as one of those women who would come of the 1,000 or so to live in this new situation in a harem as a concubine. And I don't want to sugarcoat this or skip over it too quickly so that you see what is actually happening here. The king is setting up a situation where women would come into his court. They would get the opportunity, uh, one chance to become the, the queen if, he, if she pleases him. And if not, she would be sent to a life of servitude as a concubine. She would live out in a house, never able to go back out, never able to be in relationship with anyone else again. You can see the oppressive situation of the empire and how Xerxes, seeking after pleasure instead of his purpose, set up this huge mess. Well, Esther goes in and she pleases the king. In chapter two, he says, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. He goes on to say, so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. So what did the king do? Threw a party. What did Esther do? She did what she was told. And Esther began to live into a situation where she was just going to mind her own business. And who would blame her, right? Who would blame Esther for choosing safety over purpose. I'm being, I'm being serious. Like a woman in a, such an oppressive and abusive situation. But what Esther did initially is she chose safety over purpose. What we'll see as the, as the story unfolds is that Esther actually had more of a purpose than just to be a beautiful woman who lived in the king's courts. And Esther's purpose will require a courage and an advocacy for others that she will have to dig deep to find. But initially, Esther chooses safety and silence, and we do this all the time. We read our story, we sing our songs. Our songs are what? They are songs of courage. He split the seas so I could walk right through it. But I, I just want to tell you, like, if you walked through a sea that had been split, it would not feel safe. And so all these things we celebrate and all these things we talk about are not, are not matching up with this kind of cultural ideal of pleasure and safety. And so we have to pay close attention to Esther. How did she get out of this? 
One of the reasons I'm so excited about this, and I think this could be a very timely study for us, is Esther shows what it's like to be a religious minority in a dominant culture that does not share our values. Now, we could argue about whether we're a religious minority, but I would, I, would, I would say that we are living in a place where the dominant culture does not share the values, at least as I understand them, as what it means to be a Jesus follower. So every day we are kind of running up that, we're running up against that, a kind of countercultural thing that we're living in. So we should be interested. What could Esther teach us about a people who are living in a culture where our values are not the dominant values? Tim Keller, who is another pastor and author, writes about this, and he says there's actually four options for people of faith who are living in a dominant culture that does not share their values. Here they are. The first is you can withdraw and be pure. Let's just get away from everybody else, and we'll keep all the ickiness off of us, right? And sometimes we're tempted to do that as Christians, right? I mean, sometimes wouldn't it be great? Like, we got this nice place up on a hill up here, and we could just kind of have a compound. I don't know. That might be. Anyways, um, but that's one option to withdraw. Another is you can just fit in and take on the values of our culture. And some people, and some of us do that. It's just like, yeah, I'm just gonna fit in. I'm gonna do what everybody else is doing. But we talk here about the heartbeat of the gospel and loving our neighbors. And we can see that you can't really be salt and light if you just become like everybody else. The third is this, what caught my attention. It said, you, if you're in a, a dominant culture that doesn't share your values, you can protest everything and criticize everything. I'm gonna protest everything and I'm gonna criticize everything. And I see some people doing this. In fact, sometimes people ask me why I don't. There'll be something, why don't, why don't you do that? And the reason is I think simply protesting and criticizing everything is not the most effective tool to make a difference. And I have a calling upon my life that I know what God's called me to do and how to make that difference. So you can go for that if you want, but I see that as just the way of, of, of anger and fatigue, right? If you're just gonna protest everything and criticize everything. So what do we do? Well, Esther shows us she doesn't withdraw. She's living in the palace. She doesn't fit in and take on other values. She does initially, but we'll see what happens. And she doesn't protest and criticize everything. Here's what she does. Esther finds God's purpose in God's time for how she can be God's vessel. Esther finds out what God wants her to do in this exact time and how she can be the one to bring God's message into the world. There's something I haven't talked about yet, or I haven't talked much about, maybe, uh, or at least I feel that I haven't talked as much about something that I usually do in a sermon, so I want to sort of let the cat out of the bag. If you've noticed something that I haven't talked much about, and it's this, God. I haven't talked much about God this morning yet, and the reason is, is Esther never mentions God. Isn't that interesting? Ever, Esther never says the name God. In fact, it's more than that. The book of Esther never mentions God. It never mentions God, it never mentions worship, it never mentions, mentions prayer. So Esther's the only book in the Bible with no mention of God. And I think the reason is, is to show us how God works and how we can see and find God in a time where it's hard to see him, right? I don't think the author of Esther got to the end and said, oh, I forgot to mention God. I think it was a very intentional thing to say, what does it look like, people of God, when you live in a place where God is not popular, where it's not cool to, to, to be a follower of Jesus the way we understand it? I think it's for those of us who live in this culture and know that it's so easy to get lulled to sleep in the pursuit of pleasure and safety. Good things, but not our mission. Not our mission. You see it, right? That the Persian empire is just like every empire before it and every empire since. You, you, you saw it, right, as we're laying it out? Like our culture is Xerxes, right? Our culture is Xerxes. And it's more than that. We are Esther. We are all, uh, if we're not careful, concubines to a culture. That says, hey, as long as I'm taken care of and as long as I'm pretty, I'll just kind of go with it. 
I'll just kind of go with it. But the Esther story pushes us out of that. The Esther story pushes us out where we're lulled to sleep. I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. I'm going to go after pleasure. I'm going to go after safety. And there's something in us. I can see it in some of your eyes this morning that's saying there's got to be more. You feel this tug on your very soul. That is there anybody here who feels a tug on your soul that there must be something more for your life than just the, the pursuit of pleasure and safety, that there might be something behind the scenes working. It seems like something is going on. And I, let me tell you what that is. If anybody, if anybody has that feeling in their guts right now, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's God. It's God pushing you. It's God urging you. It's God saying, I made you for something more than what you are going after. And so we, we look to Esther and we say, can we learn something from you? Can, you? can you teach us? I guess what I'm saying is, who knows? If you haven't come to this very position in your life for just this time, Maybe you're the person. Maybe this is the place. Maybe you have the words. What I'm saying is if you feel that, an urge for something more, it's not normal, okay? That's not human nature. Human nature is take care of yourself. Human nature is, you know, have, have a good long party and then, and then keep it, see if you can keep it going. But God is pushing us out of that. God is like God saying, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, Dad. When you're in the Chick-fil-A line and you're tired, I've called you to a higher purpose than just acting out of how you want to act out. I've called you to be faithful. I've called you to be holy. I've called you to be gentle. I've called you to be kind. I've called you to be loving. I've called you to witness and model Christ for your kids, even if there are idiots in our community that can't figure it out. <laughs> I'm like, I'm talking to you. If your job is, is you're like, my job's so mundane, I, I, and I'm talking to you, that God's putting in your place every day people that are dying on the inside. What will we say? What will we do? I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, church. I'm talking to you, church, when there are kids in the neighborhood, like that neighborhood who don't have food. What are we going to do? We're going to send a bus, you know, into the neighborhood. Like I'm talking to you, church, when there are young adults in our community who are dropping like flies to opioid abuse in our community. Do we care? Or do, or do we just want pleasure? Is it just about us being safe? I would want you to know. I want you to know that this week you, this church, helped pay for three young adults' funerals whose families couldn't afford it because their children died and we care. And we're saying, instead of staying on the hill, who knows, we don't know what to do, but we wanna stay on the front lines of the people that are out there who aren't you know, in the palace. I'm talking to you, church. Like, I'm talking to you, church. There are 249 shootings already this year. I don't know what to do about that, but we care. We grieve it as Pastor Mark led us. We lament, we cry out to our God. The story of Esther's talking to us. You know, like, what will be our legacy? Do you ever, like, what will be our legacy? They played it safe? You know, what, what will be our legacy? They sure knew how to party. I wonder sometimes that about, like, what will be our legacy? What will be my legacy? Well, he vacationed with the best of them. What will be your legacy? I want to talk to you, young women in our church this morning, that you could be Vashti who says, no, sir. Um, no. I will not, 
I will lose my high position if it, if it means that I can live into the calling God has for me. Like, won't we be like Esther who will say, you're going to hear this great line. She says, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to do what God called me to do. That's what I, and that's the kind of the courage that I want to take hold of. And I know that some of us, we think, man, we think my life doesn't count. I, I've been through so much, you know, the, the enemy has come against my life. You don't know the oppression I've been under, the abuse I've been under. Esther's story is a story of someone who is living in an oppressive, subjugated, abusive position. And the devil came after her because he knew that God was calling her something and tried to steal that and kill that and destroy that. But we're on the other side of the Esther story. And we know that Jesus came for us, came into our world died on a cross, not just to forgive our sins, but to give us life and to give us a, a purpose. And so some of you think, man, I, Jacob, I had this thing happen to me. I had this teacher say this thing to me. I, my parents did this to me. You, I'm, too, I'm too bruised. I'm too busted up. I'm barely hanging on. The devil is bombarding me. Well, I want to say to you this morning, you're still here. You woke up this morning. You're, you're in a time. And I'm not trying to tell you what God's purpose is. I don't know what it is, but I will ask you this question. Who knows? Who knows that maybe you've come to this position with your whole story, with the oppression and the pushing down and the brokenness, your whole story, who knows that maybe you've come to this position for such a time as this. It's going to be fun going through Esther. I want you to start reading Esther, all right? And uh, we're going to tell the story and see how she comes to this place of being someone that God uses to rescue, not just her life, but others. Let's pray together. Oh, God, thank you for this great question. Who knows that you brought us here for this time and for this place? Some of us, God, we feel that tug on our, on our hearts. We thought that we've sensed you working in the background. And so we just acknowledge you, God, in this place and ask that you would continue to show us the way. Show us how to find our purpose when it's so easy for us to choose pleasure and safety. Rescue us, God. As we come to the table this morning for communion, let it be for us the body of Christ broken for us and Jesus' blood shed for us. The bread and juice, let it be for us, Jesus, as we come, a way that we can receive, a way that we can stand up, a way that we can move forward, a way that we can come to Christ. And so we receive you, Jesus. We receive what you wanna give us. In Jesus' name, amen.